0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. By his own admission, Vivek Ramaswamy is a traitor to his class. A self-made man who founded a successful biotech firm in his 20s, Ramaswamy's story has the telltale signs of membership of America's corporate elite – but in his new book, Woke Inc., he takes aim at fellow business leaders for what he calls the defining scam of our time. According to Ramazwami, big business's enthusiastic embrace of woke identity politics isn't just hypocritical, but undemocratic. He argues that it's dividing his country and undermining the values on which America has thrived in the past. Ramazwami spoke to Oliver Wiseman, the critic's US editor, about why ruthless captains of industry have gone woke, why it matters, and what should be done about it.
1: So I want, I want to start by asking you about um, sort of recent events in your own uh, career and life, which is that you you stepped down as CEO of the company you started, uh, I believe, earlier this year, and um, part of that was sort of part of the story of this book, right? And the way in which wokeness and capitalism have kind of combined to to cause trouble. So so why don't we start start there and, and you explain to me. What happened Uh, this year. Yeah,
2: sure. I think uh, one of the things that happened was the 2008 financial crisis, actually. And uh, that's actually the untold story that I sort of lay out in my book. And it was something that, you know, I think that very few people appreciate because they think this phenomenon was new. I think it dates back at least a decade, actually about 12, 13 years to the 08 crisis, where after that, corporations were the bad guys, especially in the eyes of the old left. And what they wanted to do was to take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. Agree or not, that's what the old left had to say. And right around that time though, there was a birth of a new left, the new woke left, the new identity politics obsessed left that said actually the real problem wasn't strictly poverty or economic injustice. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for big business in the United States in particular. Because if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, that is a pretty tough pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. But this new woke stuff was actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion. You put some token minorities on boards. You go to Davos to muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after flying there on a private jet, whatever it is these guys do. That was actually pretty easy. They, They were happy to just lend their legitimacy to the new woke movement, but they didn't quite do it for free. They had an ask in return. And the implicit ask was that the new left, looks the other way when it comes to leaving corporate power intact. And I am sorry to say personally that that has worked masterfully for both sides. Silicon Valley did the same thing. censor content the woke left doesn't want to see online in return, leave our monopoly intact. Mm -hmm. And and that is how this arranged marriage, I think led to the birth of what's more like mutual prostitution. If you ask me led to the illegitimate birth of what I call the woke industrial complex.
1: Okay. And I guess, if, you're, if you believe in free enterprise, you believe in capitalism, like I, I, I believe you do, um, isn't there one kind of uh, way of thinking about all of this, which is to say, you know, if that's what it took to kind of keep, um, you know, keep, keep capitalism in and keep the likes of Bernie Sanders out, and that there's a few sort of over the top diversity training sessions and, you know, um, kind of bad, but ultimately sort of peripheral kind of... Uh, polit- political speeches given by CEOs, you know, is that is that such a high price to pay? Like what? Like who
2: cares? Uh, if 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 this. Yeah, is well, I think I think the reason I care is uh-huh. that it actually isn't capitalism at work; it is crony capitalism because it is a new marriage, actually, between big government and big business that is far more powerful than either one alone. Because together, this new force can do what neither can do on its own. Mm-hmm. So what happens in reverse now is government is dispatching these private companies to be able to do through the back door what it cannot directly do through the front door, for example, in the United States under the U.S. Constitution. I'll give you an example. Just take big tech censorship right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the conventional wisdom would say, as you said, that this is just capitalism working. Private companies are deciding what does and doesn't show up on their websites. And I would agree with that if they were actually acting as private companies. But they're not. We now know that they're responding to closed door threats made by the government. They're working coordination hand in glove with the US government to censor hate speech or misinformation as defined by the party in power. And to me, that is an affront because the government could not do it directly. So it is delegating its dirty work through the back door to a fourth branch of government in the US that operates outside of the bounds of the traditional constitution. That is a violation of democracy. That is a violation of a constitutional republic. And by the way, just the entire norm of business leaders getting behind closed doors to decide what's right and wrong is a violation of democracy too, because it demands that a small group of elite investors and CEOs decide what our moral common morality ought to look like rather than our democracy at large in the public square. And so I think it is, I think it is the gravest threat to democracy that we know today is the rise of this new brand of so-called stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. And the left loves it today, but what they, what they miss is that if they, can pro- if they can be vectors for progressive values today, they can be vehicles for any values tomorrow. And no one has mastered that game more than China, which I can say more about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Because one of the really, I think, striking things about this woke capitalism phenomenon is the you know, flagrant double standard, which is to you know, boycott certain states in the US for you know minor minor changes to the law on, on whatever issue, and then to be sort of completely in bed with um, with the Chinese Communist Party uh, and show no kind of moral qualms about, about what they're doing. Um, how, does, how does a corporation get to that place, that place where there's such an obvious um, gap between its values, so-called values at home and its values overseas?
2: Yeah, well, the way it gets to that place is a really simple phenomenon called money. What <laughs> I think Western policymakers missed for three decades is that we thought we could use our money to get China to be more like us. We sent Big Macs and Happy Meals to China thinking that would spread democracy. Instead, we have learned the reverse. They have used their money to get us to be more like them. They sent back Nike sneakers and Disney movies filled as Trojan horses with their own values. And I'll tell you what I mean. What I mean is that Disney or Nike or the NBA or BlackRock relentlessly criticize the United States for alleged social injustice, yet do not say a peep about true human rights atrocities Mm -hmm. in places like the Shenzhen province of China, where there are literally 1 million Uyghurs in concentration camps, in what I view as one of the great human rights atrocities committed by a major nation since the Third Reich of Germany. And yet, these corporations are aiding them, even praising them at every step of the way. And Mm -hmm. I think that that erodes the moral standing of the United States, erodes the moral standing of the West, where our greatest geopolitical assets are not our nuclear arsenals, it is our moral standing on the global stage. And when the new international arbiters of moral justice become morally neutral corporations, supposedly morally neutral corporations instead, and those arbiters consistently criticize the United States without saying a peep about China, that actually creates a false moral equivalence between American idealism and Chinese nihilism. And when that happens, idealism loses every time. And I think that that is, I think the great threat on the global stage is not between Democrats and Republicans or conservatives and liberals in the West. It is between the notion of idealism at all, Western liberal idealism at all, and the rise of Chinese-style nihilism. And I think that is the defining threat for the globe over the course of the next decade.
1: Mm-hmm. And and in, in your book, you define um, this sort of woke capitalism as, as a scam. It's, it's a money-making enterprise, ultimately. Um, and I just, I guess, another sort of, devil's advocate kind of skeptic um pushback would be to ask kind of in what way this ideological transformation in 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 the corporate world is actually helping helping the bottom line you know it might be true that this is what they're doing but is it really is it a product of profit maximization or is it really just the fact that you have a bunch of college grads who all kind of think and, and believe the same stuff all working in the same management system and therefore they you know they make a series of decisions that reflect those values. They're not necessarily doing it for for, for profit. Well,
2: yeah, well, look, I, in fairness, I actually lay out in the book, it's, it's it's a more complicated story than what I usually get across in a two-minute interview that shows up on social media or something. But I actually think that there's there's a few different phenomena going on. It's not just one thing. I think collectively it is a scam. And sometimes it is a way that corporations think they can make an extra buck mm-hmm. by selling morality on the side with a cup of ice cream or whatever it is that they do at Ben & Jerry's or their equivalent counterparts. You know, sometimes a shirt is just a shirt, but not anymore. A shirt always has to come with a dose of morality. Okay. There's a bit of that preying on an entire generation that has suffered, mine and yours perhaps, that mm-hmm. suffers from moral insecurities, much like a Virginia Slim's manufacturer or a cigarette manufacturer might've preyed on the adolescent insecurities of teenage girls 30 years ago. Now corporations are preying on the moral insecurities of an entire generation. Okay. That, that is definitely a big part of what's going on. I, I think that In certain cases, though, I think that they're doing it genuinely. I mean, I think that you have certain CEOs who say that, you know what? I've assumed a seat of power. I only live once. And, you know, by hell or high water, I'm going to do what I feel like doing as long as I have the power to do it. And so be it if it costs shareholders their resources. In some cases, I think they aren't pursuing the profit maximizing course of action. And they're the victims are the shareholders themselves. Mm -hmm. So, So at one hand, you have woke consumers. The other hand, you have woke executives, which I just described. Then the third phenomenon is different still, where you actually have woke investors, where they're saying, actually, no, 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 we're not the victims. In fact, we're telling you that we want you to be using your corporate platform to advance these social values or else. And by the way, you work for us, CEO, so you do what we tell you to. That's what sovereign wealth funds are doing. That's Mm -hmm. what BlackRock allegedly is doing. Uh, double click on BlackRock, and I think there's actually a woke executive problem again. Larry Fink is a steward and a custodian for trillions of dollars of assets of other people's money that he's using to push his own agenda onto the companies that BlackRock invests in, even though he's not actually, not actually his money, it's somebody else's money. But that's a good example of both issues at play and in intertwined. So no, that's why I took a whole you know, rather not short book to, to expose yeah, all yeah. of this in nuance. but. But, but I agree with you. I think that there's more going on than just the first order cynical take that I mm-hmm. might, you know, be able to describe in a, in a, you know, two minute television interview.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess another question then, uh, this, uh, and I'm sort of on, totally on your team when it comes to this broad phenomenon, I guess one of the tricky questions is um, there's, on the one hand, there's the content of the ideas we're discussing, the, the kind of woke orthodoxy, and, and, and we can talk in a minute maybe about what's wrong with some of those ideas, but... Um, when it comes to kind of the policy response to this, how to think about this problem of woke capitalism and its impact on democracy, um, it's a tricky balance, right? Because I think we can both accept that we would like business leaders with, you know, there's nothing wrong with businesses just trying to make money, but equally, if a business leader has a strongly held view and that's reflected in the in the business decisions they make, um, or if an investor does, then there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we I would applaud a, a clothes manufacturer that refuses to do business um, in parts of China where maybe there are there's forced labor, for example, or... Um,
2: yeah. All I, the, the basic argument that I'm making in the book is actually one for institutional honesty. Yeah. I think we live in a moment of rampant institutional lying. It is no longer a one-off exception. It is the norm. Nobody believes what any institution, corporations, government, university leaders, nobody believes the words that come out of their mouth because usually most of the time, they don't mean it themselves either. And I think that sometimes they're using it to create greater power for themselves. Sometimes they're using it to make an extra buck. Sometimes they actually mean it. Nobody on the outside can tell the difference. You know, I, I began writing the book worried about the potential racialization of America and, and you know, of, of the West broadly by corporations adopting these, this new vision of individual identity grounded in race. And, you know, I think that, that that is a problem in places like our schools. What I've found is in corporate America, That's actually less the problem. I don't think when somebody goes into an anti-racism, diversity and inclusion session, they come out of it with a more racialized view of the world. I think they come out of it with their eyes glazed over. I think they come out of it bored. I think they come out of it tuned out. I think they don't listen to what what they had to say because they knew nobody meant it. They thought it was a load of garbage. And most of the time they're right about that. So the real problem isn't that they have this sort of postmodern racialized view of their colleagues at work. Mm -hmm. The real problem is they just continue to feed their cycle of institutional mistrust. And I'm sorry to say that their mistrust is actually well-placed in the fact that they have no reason to believe what they're being told. And, you know, I think that's a broader phenomenon when you think about the last year with respect to policies as it pertains to COVID-19, the discussion as it relates to the origin of this virus. That, those are clearly themes that are mostly outside the scope of my book. But I think that this crisis of institutional mistrust yeah. arising from rampant institutional lying is actually what's at the core of this book.
1: Yeah and i guess so if on and so there's a sort of dishonesty and insincerity is part of the, a big part of the problem um another part of the problem which you're hinting at too then is also when it comes to figuring out how to think about businesses and, the, and their values is the sort of is just the monoculture right like there's not it's the way in which only one type of politics is tolerated from a ceo so you presumably would be okay with a world where you had quote unquote woke ceos and you also had conservative ceos and they could they could their business can reflect their values and, and everyone can sort of tolerate a certain amount of diversity of views there. And instead what we have is a, is a, is a business culture, a, a corporate culture where there's really one kind of politics that you're allowed to express and other ones, are, are, you know, people with other politics who are business leaders are sort of basically just just keep business and, and, and politics completely separate. Yes,
2: yeah, so, so, you know, I think that that's, I, I, just, I just modify one thing you said. Yeah. <sighs> At a deeper level, I actually object to mixing social values with the pursuit of, of commercial gain, period. Mm-hmm. In part for another reason we haven't talked about, which is that I think a divided polity like ours in the United States, I'd say the same in the UK too, depends on a an apolitical private sector, certain apolitical spaces that bring us together, whether we are black or white, mm-hmm. whether we are Democrat or Republican, or, or you know, your equivalent partisan divide is in the UK, whether or not we're gay or straight, we come together to buy things from one another, to play sports with one another, to enjoy art with one another, irrespective of those more superficial identities. And when the private sector itself becomes politicized, yeah, I mean, I think that could could there be a great business opportunity for a right-leaning entrepreneur who wants to create a new brand of coffee or pillows or or cell phones or whatever the case may be for the right wing equivalent or sneakers for the right wing equivalent of their counterparts like Nike on the other side. Sure. I think there is a great opportunity. I think that people are going to do it. If this were an episode of shark tank, if the guy's half competent, I would say bet on it. But you know, I I don't love the world in which we have two versions of baseball, two versions of coffee, two versions of sneakers. I think that that is the beginning of our path to a civil war. And I think that that is something that I'm really wary of. All that being said, to, your, to your, the, the spirit of your question, yes, there is an asymmetry today where in the name of diversity, we have actually sacrificed true diversity of thought. Anytime somebody in the corporate sector means diversity, they mean the opposite of diversity. Anytime somebody in the corporate sector says inclusion, they mean the opposite of inclusion. It is the exclusion of certain views that are no longer welcome in the public square. And there too, I think democracy suffers because the best measure in my opinion of the health of any democracy is the percentage of people who are willing to say what they actually believe in public. And I think whether it's the US or the UK or the Western world as we know it right now, we are doing abysmally on that metric. Mm-hmm. And you,
1: you know, your ability to do business and, and hold, hold political beliefs, um, even very, very mainstream ones, this is something you kind of have come up against recently
2: yourself, right? Absolutely, I mean, look, I don't wanna, I'm no victim here, I've published yeah, a best-selling yeah. book I've been a successful you know, entrepreneur. I don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table. So for me, you know, I mean, people will say it was courageous or whatnot for me to you know, take the step that I did. Certainly, a lot of my peers don't. But by comparison to, I think, the much more difficult position that others may be in to express their views, where they do have to trade off the risk of putting food on the dinner table, I'm no hero. But I do think that, yes, even my own experience of having been through that journey in my own life having to make the trade-offs needed to be able to speak in an uninhibited way about the kinds of themes I'm discussing in my book, I think reveal the challenges that are far more pervasive for everyday Americans and and everyday citizens in liberal democracies around the world, where in the name of living in a democracy, we actually live in a democracy where certain points of view are just not welcome. And the biggest threat to liberty may not be the government itself, but this new hybrid, as I said, of the government and the private sector and our culture that actually stifle open discourse and debate, which is the lifeblood of any democracy itself. And I think one of the
1: things that's really interesting in what you're saying and in your book is also the way in which actually it's not that, like you say, it's not that Americans are being successfully sort of brainwashed by big business into thinking X, Y, and Z. It's that they just look at this and, and, are, and are very cynical about it and, they, and it just adds to this, like you say, this crisis of, of distrust and, and cynicism and you know institutional sort of weakness that, that is a defining, defining problem at the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. is is the short answer. Yeah, saying.
1: yeah, and so what? Um, you know, what is uh, to be done? Because I mean, I, I suppose for most people on the right, traditional the, the traditional um, response to a lot of these things is yes, I wish a business would do this or that differently, but you know, we are, you know, we well, don't. I, and so I, I we think that
2: there's the, there are some superficial legal solutions that I discuss in depth in the book. Yeah. I think that certainly in the, in the American context, I think we ought to add political belief as a protected class right there next to race, sex, religion, and national origin, which are so-called protected classes from discrimination in the U.S. I think political belief should be on that list. If you can't fire somebody or deplatform somebody because they're black or gay or Muslim or Christian or Jewish or white or whatever— You should not be able to do that just because they're an outspoken conservative either. And I do not think this is an academic issue. I believe it is happening every day directly or indirectly in the United States, probably much of Western Europe too. And if it can happen to the 45th president of the United States, I think it can happen to anybody. This is a serious issue and it's a fixable one with public policy. Mm -hmm. I think big tech companies should no longer be given special legislative protections like in Section 230 where they're immunized from being able to take down speech that is otherwise constitutionally protected. The way I look at it is either you operate like a private company without special government protections, great, or you get the special government protection from the US federal government, but you are bound then by the same constraints as the federal government, including the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which protects free speech. Those are the kinds of solutions that I think fit the the bill of you can't have it both ways, correcting this form of crony capitalism where actually legal legal misapplications of legal principles Mm -hmm. i think that uneven applications of basic policy concepts have created distortions that that amplify the underlying problem But, but as i alluded to earlier oliver i think those are just symptomatic therapies what we really need is a cultural cure one that elevates a shared identity that is so powerful that it dilutes this woke agenda to irrelevance. And I think that we have spent the last decade celebrating our diversity as a people. So be it, I think the next decade ought to be about elevating what still binds us together as one people across all of that diversity. In the American context, I say it's the American dream. The idea that no matter who you are or where your parents came from, you can achieve anything you ever want with your own hard work, your own commitment, your own dedication. I have lived that dream, it's personal to me. I think these are the kinds of free speech, open debate, due process. These are the basic ideas that bind us together as a people, irrespective of our race or religion or our national origin. And I think that that's what we'll need to elevate it through civic education in an entire new generation that needs to be, needs to be, needs to be taught that you don't just inherit a country. You got to have a stake in building it. And one of the solutions I propose is, for example, weaving civic service into primary education as a way of cultivating that shared identity over fractious group identity. Mm-hmm.
1: And and who are the sort of I mean, your book there's a sort of rogues gallery, I guess, in your book that comes out of the sort of people we need to hear less from. You know, we need to hear a lot less from the the Klaus Schwabs of this world. You know, the guy that runs Davos, for example, and and um, you know the, that sort of crowd of, of jet setting, um, do gooding uh, corporate elite sort of group. But do you have sort of uh, the kind of arguments and voices and people that that, that are the antidote to the kind of divisive.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more of a I'm, a, I'm in the camp of always be a more of a hear more from person than a hear less from. Sure. I think that we hear too much, relatively, proportionately, from people who control dollars in the marketplace, from people who have access to private jets to go to Davos. I think that, you know, my neighbors here in Ohio have no less standing than Klaus Schwab or Larry Fink or any of the other captains of the woke industrial complex to be able to have their voice represented in American democracy. I think the same would apply to the equivalent citizenry in the UK. And I think that what we ought to do is restore a body politic where Larry Fink's opinions about which stocks to buy ought to count more than my next door neighbors here in Ohio. Maybe even ought to count more than mine, but I don't think that his voice ought to count an iota more than my neighbors here in Ohio. And I think that what he's able to do is be able to be the puppet master behind the, you know, man behind the curtain who pulls the strings on American democracy. And I don't think that's the way our democracy is supposed to work, like some sort of American equivalent of a Potemkin village in the USSR. Yeah, that's exactly what the the, the puppet show feels like today.
1: Well, on that uh, emphatic note, Vivek, thank you very much uh, for
2: joining the Critic Podcast and um, thank you for an excellent book. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Oliver. And I hope you, you and your listeners, you know, read and enjoy the book and, and I'll welcome, maybe we can have a follow-up in six months after you have, and uh, and we'll take some, some counter responses. Thank you, man.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today, with the current offer of five issues for 10 pounds by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.